right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Redemption Church this morning. Uh, my name is Reggie Horn, and uh, I am one of the um, pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption. And this morning, we are continuing uh, our look through the book of Acts. We have been going through uh, the book of Acts for a while now, and, and we'll be going through it for the rest of the summer um, specifically this morning we're looking at Acts chapter 16, but we're in the, part of the, in, in the part of Acts where the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. If you remember at the beginning of Acts, um, there's a promise uh, from Jesus that, that his word will go forth in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we're at the part of Acts where the gospel is moving out literally to the ends of the earth. And, um, and like I said, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 16 in just a minute, but let's pray before we get there. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be here this morning to worship together, to be together, to hear from your word. And Holy Father, over the next few minutes as we look at your word and learn from, from, from what you have recorded for us, what your Holy Spirit has inspired for us, God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of grace instrument of the gospel. Holy Father, that Christ would be raised high and that we would be drawn to you because Christ is proclaimed. Holy Father, I recognize that my words are of little significance, but your words are of utmost importance. And so I pray that we would hear from you, that you would move in our hearts and minds and speak to us the very things you would have us hear and that we would be changed because of Christ. And Holy Father, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In Acts chapter 16, we have the story of what might be the first church plant in Europe. Now, we don't know if it's the first church plant in Europe. It's certainly Paul's first missionary journey into Europe from the Middle East. It's in northern Greece in Acts chapter 16. The most of it takes place in a, in a city called Philippi. Last week, Brent talked about chapter 15 of Acts. And in chapter 15, um, really gives us the context for what takes place in 16 or the context for how to understand what happens in chapter 16, right? Chapter 15 is really about a clarification of the gospel, Does one enter a right relationship with God through the work of Christ alone, or must you do something in addition to Christ's work to be saved? And chapter 15 very specifically tackles the subject of circumcision as it relates to Old Testament um, laws and how God identified his people. And so when we get to chapter 16... Chapter 15 has already clarified for us, and and we knew this already, but chapter 15 has clarified once again that Christ and Christ alone does the work of salvation. There is not Christ plus something, it's Christ. Christ has already done the work. Over the years here at Redemption Church, um, we've messed up a lot. We've made mistakes We've unintentionally hurt people. We've been criticized for a lot of things. Some of those things we should have been criticized for, and some of them probably not so much. And it's been a few years now, and I don't remember the exact circumstances, 
that several years ago there was a fairly public criticism of Redemption Church that we focused too much on the gospel. That we talked about it too much. I remember hearing that criticism and sort of sitting back and laughing and going, if there's anything in the world that you want to criticize me for, please criticize me for talking about the gospel too much. Right? When it comes down to it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the announcement of the good news of Jesus to restore sinful image bearers of God to a right relationship and, a re- and the rightful worship of God and the redemption of the entire world eventually, that announcement is the most precious truth that can ever be offered to anyone at any time. That announcement is more precious than anything else. We're not offering a religion that merely says conform to our way of life. We're not offering a path of self-discovery and self-help. We're offering a Savior who's done it all for us. We're offering something else altogether, and that's Jesus. Of everything that I could tell you from the stage, and I think about this every time I preach, what can I say that's of any significance that will last beyond today? And the truth of how God has worked through history on behalf of his people, the truth of how that work culminates in the person and work of Jesus, and how that changes everything, of everything that I could stand up here and say to you, There is nothing more precious. There is nothing more valuable. There is nothing that will last. I read in Psalm chapter 10 this morning earlier where God says, the nations will pass, but the justice of God will last forever. And so when we look at Acts chapter 16, we're looking at the real world effects of the gospel of how Jesus changes everything, of how Jesus saves people, of how Jesus liberates the oppressed, of how Jesus vindicates his followers. And so as we look at chapter 16 this morning, I'm going to handle it a a little differently than I normally do when I go through a passage. But we're going to break this passage down into chunks. We're going to look at chunks of verses, and we're simply going to examine how the gospel shows up in those sections of the verses, how the gospel impacts in real-world ways what's happening in Acts chapter 16. So the first thing that we're going to look at is Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can look there. It should be up on the screen too, I believe. But Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. And let me just say, uh, you'll notice in verse 10 that Luke actually joins the journey. The language changes And it goes from being they to we. So the writer of Acts actually shows up and is a part of what happens in Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him, Because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions 
that had reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, forgi- having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. At the end of chapter 15, Paul and his companions from his first missionary journey, uh, Barnabas and John Mark, John Mark being the author of the book of Mark, but Barnabas and John Mark, they part ways. We didn't read it, but at the end of Acts chapter 15, the text says that Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. They have an emotional argument, and so they split up. And Paul, and they split up specifically because Paul refuses to allow John Mark to go on the second missionary journey because John Mark had left the first missionary journey and gone home before it was all over. And evidently, Paul's still upset about that. Barnabas sticks up for John Mark, just like he did for Paul. If you remember at the beginning, uh, earlier in the book of Acts, Barnabas sticks up for, for Paul. But Barnabas sticks up for John Mark, just like he did for Paul, about 10 years prior to this moment. But Paul doesn't want to hear it. Paul doesn't want to have any part of it. And so the thinking is actually that Paul reacts like a hothead in the moment and makes these two guys go about their, their way. And then we pick up in 16 with Silas and Timothy joining Paul on the second missionary journey. Just as a quick side note, you don't really see Barnabas and Mark again in the book of Acts. You see Mark later in the New Testament, and Paul speaks very highly of Mark later in the New Testament. And we know that Mark spent time with Peter as well, and so there's reconciliation that happens later. But right now, Paul and his two new companions, Silas and Timothy, take off on what is known as Paul's second missionary journey journey or continue on Paul's second missionary journey. And so they take off and they go in the reverse order of Paul's first missionary journey to relate to the churches what had happened in Jerusalem in Acts 15, that circumcision is not required for believers to come to faith. Essentially, you don't have to become Jewish to become a believer. But verse 3 here poses a little bit of a problem, and so just let me deal with it. Because Paul is on a journey to tell churches about the decision from Jerusalem, like I said, that there's no need to become Jewish to become a believer. But verse 3 tells us that Timothy is circumcised at the beginning of this journey. And it's a little bit of a conundrum. And it at first seems inconsistent with both Acts 15 and with how strongly Paul speaks against circumcision in the book of Galatians, and specifically in the book of Galatians as it relates to uh, somebody named Titus, who you also see in the New Testament. But, but I would say that the reason that this happens, and this is important, and this is something that uh, I'll, I'll draw to a conclusion here about the gospel in a second, but I would say that the reason this happens boils down to a missionary strategy. Um, The Jews referred to in Acts 16.3, they were not even Christians. No Christians were pushing 
for Timothy's circumcision like what had happened in Acts chapter 15. And so rather, I think what this was about was about building a bridgehead, building a bridge to those Jewish believers that Paul was seeking to convert. It appears that Timothy's circumcision was not motivated, motivated by Christian pressure from within, but by a missionary strategy from without. In Timothy's case, what was at stake was how unbelieving Jewish people might best be won to Christ. So just as Christian freedom calls Paul to resist Titus's circumcision in the book of Galatians, this same freedom allowed him to remove the stumbling block of Timothy's lack of circumcision. Now, all of that sounds crazy, and I get that to a certain extent. All that happens in chapter 16 of Acts sounds a little bit crazy. Brent and I were talking about it earlier this week, and Brent said it almost lends credibility to the gospel story here and how crazy all of this is. Who, who could make this stuff up? But have you ever heard what Paul said in, current, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Listen to what Paul says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And listen to this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul and Timothy here specifically believed that nothing was more important than the proclamation of the gospel that some might come to faith in Christ. They recognized the worth and value of the truth of Christ's work on their behalf, on our behalf, on behalf of these unbelieving Jewish people, and they were willing to suffer for it. Literally. Over and over in the New Testament, we see Paul suffering for the gospel. We see him rejoicing in that suffering. We see it in Acts chapter 16. At the end of Acts chapter 16, we'll get to that in a minute. They're rejoicing in their suffering. Paul talks about it in Romans 5 and in other places. I rejoice in my tribulation. I rejoice in my suffering. And Timothy, like Paul, is willing to suffer that somebody might come to faith. And I, I'm not being critical when I ask us this question because I'm asking it of myself as well. But are we that passionate about the gospel? Are we as passionate as Timothy was? Are we willing to suffer that someone else might reap the benefits of Christ's work among us or for us? Right, that's a heavy question. I know that, right? I, I get it because I'm asking it of myself, like I said. But I'm asking you, are you willing to give? Are you willing to pray? Are you willing to suffer? Are you even willing to speak the gospel that some might be saved? Because I believe that's exactly what Timothy was doing here. 
suffering that some might be saved. At the end of what I read a second ago, Paul, um, they have this vision that they're to go over to Macedonia. They're to go over to Greece. And so that leads us to verses 11 through 15. They've received this call and they've traveled. And uh, just there's a couple of verses there about all the places that they've traveled. And then they're traveling over to Greece. And I want you to understand that's several hundred miles. It's not just sh a short journey here and a short journey here. Altogether, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles that they've traveled around. And so that leads us eventually in verse 11 to where they get to the city of Philippi. Let's read um, verses 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to, to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody else where you were seeking to establish common ground? Have you ever had the experience of finding out you share a common interest with someone else, maybe that you didn't know you shared with them? Right? This concept reminds me of football season in the South. On game day, I wear my Gamecock gear. Yes, and when I see fellow University of South Carolina Gamecock fans, right, there's an instant connection, there's an instant high five, there's, there's an instant something that happens because we like the same team, there's common ground, and that's essentially what Paul does everywhere he goes on his missionary journeys. He goes somewhere and seeks to establish common ground, to, to build a bridge, and so typically what happens is that Paul and his companions on their missionary journeys, they would go first to a synagogue in whatever city they're at. So they're at Philippi and there's no synagogue, which means there's probably not a very big Jewish population in Philippi where they've ended up. You see later in the New Testament that Paul um, writes a letter to this church probably about 10 years after the events that unfold here. Uh, it's the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And Paul is probably, when he writes that letter, is probably writing to some of the same people that he has begun to encounter right now in this passage. So there's no synagogue, so they go outside the city to find a place of prayer, and they meet Lydia along with some others. And it says that Lydia is a worshiper of God. This term, worshiper of God, is probably a pretty, or it's not probably, it is. It's a technical term um, that mean, meant someone who is not Jewish, but is seeking the God of the Hebrew Bible. 
seeking the God of the Hebrews, but someone who is not converted to be Jewish. The text tells us that Lydia is from Thyatira. That's in modern-day Turkey. That she was a seller of purple goods. She probably learned that skill back home in Thyatira. But ultimately, what that means is that she was a purveyor of luxury goods, right? This was expensive. And so, ultimately, she probably uh, was a wealthy businesswoman, purveyor of luxury goods, owned her own home, had a household of people, and her home became the meeting place of what might have been the very first church in Europe, or at least one of the first churches in Europe. And, and, and I don't want you to miss this, okay? Because she was a Middle Eastern woman in Greece, and her home became what might have been the meeting place for one of the first churches in Europe. The home of an immigrant from the Middle East might have become the meeting place of one of the first churches in Europe. And I don't think that should go unnoticed. But verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And that's a little bit of what I want to pick up about the gospel there. There's something about the gospel I want to highlight here. It's the Lord who opened her heart to the truth about Jesus. That's what the text says. The Holy Spirit did that. It wasn't what Paul said that led to her salvation. It was the fact that the Lord opened her heart. And ultimately, that's how salvation works. That's what salvation is. It's God acting on our behalf through Jesus and God calling us to himself because of Jesus. And ultimately, the God, restruct, God restructures our heart and that's exactly what we see happening with Lydia here. The gospel changes us from the inside out. It changes us to value Jesus. It changes us to respond to the good news of what Christ has done for us. And we see here that Lydia, um, in recognition of that change, invites them into her home, like I said, the, uh, which becomes the meeting place for this church in Philippi. Moving on, let's look at verses 16 through 24. It says this, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
let me just point out real quick as we begin that this is another example of Paul uh, being hot-headed. Uh, it is a good thing, uh, but just like at the end of, end of Acts chapter 15 where he gets mad and they split ways, Paul reacts very strongly in this moment. You see it again at the end of chapter 16. We'll see it in a moment, in a, in a, again in a second. But these verses are quite troubling to me. Because the whole idea that there's a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm of angels and demons and spirits and all this other stuff, it actually scares me because I don't quite comprehend it or get it. But it's all throughout Scripture and we know it's true. And essentially what happens here is that Paul casts a demon, a spirit, out of this girl that was oppressing her. And not only was she being oppressed by this spirit, she was being oppressed by her owners because she existed to make them money. It's a common theme in the book of Acts to see the tension between greed and the gospel. It shows up in a variety of places, and this is just another one of those uh, themes that Luke puts in over and over and over. And her owners get angry because just as Paul freed her from the spirit, he frees them of the opportunity to make more money by fortune-telling. And actually, in the Greek, there's a play on words there. It doesn't come through in English, but that's essentially what the Greek says. And so they make up some charges. These people, they make up some charges, and Paul and Silas are beaten with their rod to the point of being bloodied, and they're put in jail in the innermost cell, and their feet are put into stocks. And they're made to suffer... Because the truth of the gospel led Paul ultimately to liberate this young girl. And I'll stay with me for a second. The truth of the gospel is meant to be realized in real world situations where injustice and oppression and sin reigns. We live in this now but not yet tension to where Christ has already won the victory. We know that Christ is going to eventually redeem the world to himself. But sin still exists and we're still fallen. And the gospel has something to say about real world situations where injustice and oppression and sin reigns while we're waiting on Jesus to ultimately bring the fulfillment of everything that he promised. And i got to be honest, the text says it took a couple of days for Paul to get mad and do something about this and to intervene. I don't know why it took so long. That actually bothers me a little bit. But we see him snap in verse 18, like he probably did with Barnabas and John Mark, like I said, and he gets annoyed, and he confronts the spirit, and he commands it to leave. Now, it's because Paul was a believer, it's because Paul had been saved by Jesus and sent on mission by the Holy Spirit. It's because the Holy Spirit was uh, lived in Paul like he does any believer that Paul can do this. Paul was saved by Jesus and sent on mission by the Holy Spirit. Jesus worked on Paul's behalf. Paul called himself the chief of sinners in the power of Christ because of the good news of Christ. Through that power, Paul releases this girl from oppression. It's the mark of a believer in Jesus. It is the mark of a follower of God 
that God's people fight for those who have no voice and cannot fight for themselves because of sin and evil and oppression. It's the mark of a believer that the gospel has something to say about sin and oppression and evil, and the believer acts upon it. In Isaiah 58, God is talking to his people about fasting. It's Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement in Isaiah 58. God's people are fasting. They're wanting to worship. And God takes a look at their worship, and he says, I don't want this. I don't want it. Your fasting means nothing to me. And here's why. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? It is the mark of God's people, that they concern themselves with the oppression caused by sin and evil in this world while we wait for Jesus to ultimately bring the fulfillment of that victory. James puts it like this in James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The gospel, the power of the gospel isn't meant for you to just get a ticket to heaven. There's this division that's brewing in the American church today. We see it over and over, and you see it across denominations. You see it even in our own city that there are those who say the role of the church is to preach the gospel and the chief end of that preaching is for souls to be saved and that's all that's important. And there are those churches who say that the role of the church is to fight for social justice on all levels, that the gospel exists to have real-world tangible benefits, and this idea of preaching justification by faith and salvation through Jesus is not as important as some of these other things. And then there are those in the American church today and in the world church today even, there are those who say these two things are joined at the hip and they actually go hand in hand. That you can't have one without the other. Right? All through the Old Testament, through the Torah, through the minor prophets, through the major prophets, we just read from Isaiah... All throughout the Old Testament, the outward action of caring for widows, for orphans, for immigrants, for refugees, for the poor, are marks of God's people. You know in the Old Testament that somebody is right with God because they're caring for widows and orphans and immigrants and refugees and the poor. Those outward actions are indications of a right relationship with God. And that theme continues into the New Testament. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember what Jesus when Jesus talked about who your neighbor was? Do you remember the story of the good Samaritan? Do you have you read the book of James, right? And so it should be natural for believers to speak the truths of God to the world, to proclaim the gospel and to care enough about the gospel to suffer for it like Timothy was. 
And it should be natural for believers to stand for justice where this fallen world stands for injustice. I'll be the first to admit that the point of Luke recording this story about the slave girl probably serves to show us how Paul and Silas got put in prison more than anything else. And I, I, I don't know why it took Paul so long to act on behalf of this slave girl. But I am 100% positive that it's because of the power of the gospel that Paul was able to act on her behalf. Right? And we've got to understand that the proclamation of salvation and justification through faith in Jesus rightly leads us down the road to justice and speaking for those who can't speak for themselves and caring for those and speaking for those who can't speak and care for themselves rightly leads us down the road to more salvations and more disciples. They go hand in hand. We have to understand that the gospel is about grace, but the gospel is about justice as well. Do you know why Jesus went to the cross? To satisfy God's holy justice. Grace and justice go together. And one is not meant to be separated from the other. Paul David Tripp puts it this way. You see, forgiveness is costly, but so is justice. It's right to say God's forgiveness drove Jesus to the cross, but we must also say that God's, jo God's justice drove him there as well. It's vital that this costly pair be held together and never be allowed to be separate in our hearts or in our daily living. Forgiveness without God's holy justice makes no sense. And is therefore cheap, unbiblical forgiveness. And justice that is not dyed with forgiveness will soon degenerate into crushing legalism, functional hatred, and various forms of vengeance. It is a travesty that the modern church would be willing to speak so boldly against abortion and to ignore refugees and immigrants. It's a travesty. It's a travesty that we're willing to stand behind a political platform and say, this is how we deal with refugees and immigrants. That's not what God's word says. God's people are concerned about injustice. God's people are concerned about people that are oppressed because God is concerned about justice. Just as much as he's concerned about his grace. Grace and justice go hand in hand. So if we rightly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand that it is the offering of grace to us by Christ's death on the cross. But what sent Jesus to the cross was just as much a part of justice as it was anything else. God's justice had to be satisfied on the cross through Jesus. The gospel is intimately connected to justice just as much as it is to grace and forgiveness. And we as a church, here, nationally, globally, we don't really get the gospel if we don't get all of that together. We don't really understand it. We're going to move on to verses 25 through 40. Verses 25 through 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's 
bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let these men, let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the third time that we see Paul respond in, in a uh, sort of hot-headed fashion, going, nah, I'm not leaving. Y'all got to come talk to me first. Um, but we have this Philippian jailer who was given orders to guard Paul and Silas. So he takes them, he puts them into the innermost cell. He's probably a retired Roman soldier, seen the worst of humanity. He probably lives right next door to the jail. It might even be a house connected to the jail. He has them put in the innermost cell, and their feet are put in stocks. And it's no wonder that they're still awake at midnight because they've been beaten and bloodied and their feet are up in stocks. They probably can't go to sleep because they're hurting and uncomfortable. And somehow they're singing and praying with great joy in the middle of the night. And as I've already said, Paul talks about this over and over in his letters, rejoicing in tribulation and suffering. And I think maybe part of what's going on here is that Paul understood that this period of tribulation and suffering and the wounds on his back and the back of Silas was an indicator that God is about to do something extraordinary in this city. And then there's an earthquake, and the locks on the doors are released. And the jailer thinks the worst, and he even attempts to take his own life, because more than likely he would have been killed had all the prisoners escaped. We've already seen that happen in the book of Acts. And Paul exclaims from within the prison, we're all here. I don't know how all the other prisoners didn't take off uh, that were there. Somehow Paul and Silas, something about them made these prisoners stay. The jailer calls for lights and comes to where Paul and Silas are, and he's trembling, and he's scared, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas respond by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, I don't know if the jailer was asking the question literally about salvation in Jesus. He had certainly heard them singing and praying, knew why they were in jail, knew what they had been talking about. I don't know why he asked that question, but Paul and Silas answer with 
a summation of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Right? Because we know that the way of salvation, the way of rescue from sin, the way out of bondage to Satan, sin, and death is by believing in Christ, in Christ alone. It's faith alone in Christ alone. It's an abandonment of any hope that lies within ourself. It's a recognition that there's nothing that I can do, there's no work I can do, there's nothing I can fulfill. It's Christ and Christ alone. And that's what they indicate to this jailer. It's about what Jesus has done, and he tells, they tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus. And the only thing that this jailer can do is cast himself completely into the arms of Jesus based on this truth, right? In chapter 15, the gospel is preserved. It's Christ and Christ alone that grants you salvation. In chapter 16, this gospel truth actually changes lives. Lydia comes to faith. The slave girl is released from oppression. A Philippian jailer is told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he is. Chapter 15, the gospel is preserved. Chapter 16, the gospel is at work. And you see what happens when the gospel is at work. I'm going to come to a close, and I'm going to give us just three takeaways from this passage. Number one, the gospel is for everyone. There is no religious, socioeconomic, cultural, or racial type that is excluded. The gospel is for everyone. Lydia was a wealthy Middle Eastern woman. The slave girl, we have no idea where she's from. She could have been from anywhere. We just know for sure she wasn't Roman because she was a slave. The jailer, he's a Roman citizen, retired from the army, could have been from any number of places. Philippi was actually uh, sort of a retirement area for Roman soldiers. And the reality of Christianity and the reality of the gospel is that Christianity is the only religion that has never been primarily confined to one area of the world or one type of people. There are more African, Asian, and Hispanic Christians than there will ever be Western European and North American Christians. It's the height of arrogance for us to think that North America is the center of Christianity. It's not. There's no one anywhere in the world or in this city or in this room who can say that they are not the Christian type. And if we say that about somebody else, if we say they're not the Christian type, if we lose hope for anybody and show contempt for anybody based on race, gender, culture, or whatever, then we don't truly grasp grace and we don't truly grasp the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. Number two, there is no greater unifying force on the planet than the gospel. That doesn't mean Christians have always practiced this well. As a matter of fact, we failed at this miserably. Christians in North America have a history of promoting segregation and oppression, at least white evangelical Christians do. But the gospel rightly understood and rightly lived out unifies people that would otherwise have no relationship. Look at what happens between the Philippian jailer and Paul and Silas after he's saved. He takes them into his home immediately, helps them get cleaned up, feeds them. 
There's no reason other than the gospel for the jailer to do what he's done, but he does it because he's been changed and they're family now. And this first church in Philippi, one of the first churches in Europe, maybe the first church in Europe, we, we don't know, starts as a diverse group of people unified around the gospel. Number three, the gospel cannot be canned. And here's what I mean by this. The truth of the gospel meets us all differently. It meets us all where we are. The gospel showed up and it affected Timothy and what he was willing to do for the sake of the gospel. It shows up, in a, in, 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 it shows up for Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer in different ways. But it was still the truth of the work of Jesus on behalf of his, of his people that led to the gospel being realized in their lives. Right? And the truth of it is, the gospel meets us this morning where we are. The truth of the fact that God has done something for us, it may meet us all a little bit differently this morning, but it doesn't negate the fact that the truth of the gospel is that God has acted on our behalf and that culminated in the person and work of Jesus. And so the question that I would end with is this, where is the gospel meeting you? Where is the truth of what Christ has done on your behalf, on our behalf, meeting you this morning? Where is it meeting you? Is it convicting you? Is it calling you to do something? Is it calling you to surrender your life to Christ? Where is it meeting you this morning? How is it encouraging you? What is God doing in your heart and mind this morning because of the gospel? And I'll leave you with that question as we enter into a time of response. We do this on a regular basis at Redemption. Uh, we close our, our sermons with a time of response, and, and we do that so that we have an opportunity to continue to worship uh, in a few different ways. We can continue to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back. We can continue to worship by singing as the band comes uh, and, and leads us in a, in a second, and some different songs, and gives us the opportunity to continue to worship by singing. We have the opportunity to continue to worship and to respond by sitting where we are, reflecting, praying, um, whatever it might be. We have the opportunity to continue to worship and to respond by taking communion. Um, we're going to take communion. Uh, you can come down these, these outside aisles here, uh, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was, shed, that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Scripture tells us that every time we do this, we're doing it to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it, that we believe the gospel is good and true.